0: <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of studying your word. As we talk about it, we would see Jesus and him only. In Your name we pray. Amen. So, what kind of faith do we want to have? More importantly, what kind of faith does Jesus call us to? Well, Charles Blondine, a famous French tightrope walker, gives us a wonderful illustration of what true faith, belief, and trust is. Blondine's fame came in 1860. Uh, He was a tightrope walker, walker, and he was the first to walk across Niagara Falls, and as he did, 160 feet over the waters, uh, he did different tricks. He um, once did it in a sack, uh, he did it on stilts, he did it on a bicycle, he did it in the dark, and he did it blindfolded. One time he even carried a stove out to the middle and cooked an omelet, A large crowd gathered, and a buzz of excitement gathered along the sides of the riverbank. The crowd oohed and aahed with each feet. Blondine walked across, one dangerous step after another, pushing a wheelbarrow this time, full of a sack of potatoes. Blondine suddenly stopped and addressed the audience. "'Do you believe I can carry a person across in the wheelbarrow?' The crowd enthusiastically says, yes, you're the best. You're the best tightrope walker in the world. We believe. Okay, said Blondine. Who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? (laughs) No one volunteered. No one really trusted. Faith is trusting. It's believing that God is there and he is exactly who he said he is. But it's more. Biblical Christian faith is ultimate trust. It's getting in the wheelbarrow and being at peace. Knowing in the deepest part of our souls that Jesus is completely trustworthy and resting in the confidence of that truth. When I was 16, I didn't know it, but my faith was in kindergarten. I was in the car with my youth director. We were waiting to go into a swim meet. One of my friends was participating in. And he turns to me and he says, Matthew, are you a Christian? And I was puzzled by that. I, I, of course, I've been coming to your youth group. I've been going to church all the time. have been a Christian all my life. Duh. Um, and he looks back at me and he says, well, why don't you act like it? And for some people, uh, that might have sent them the other way. For me, the Holy Spirit softened my heart and allowed me to hear the truth of what he was saying that I needed to face. I knew a lot of stuff about God. I did a lot of God things as a teenager, but I hadn't put my ultimate trust in God. I hadn't gotten in the wheelbarrow. So I will be eternally grateful to Dwight Jarrett, my youth director, for speaking the truth to me, uh, for being brave enough to risk that. Well, in today's passage, it's a long one, Acts chapter 6, really, all of chapter 6, and all of chapter 7, and then the first verse or two of chapter 8. We didn't read all of that. I'll talk through some of that. Uh, but your legs might have worn out if we had stood for all of that time, and we didn't want anybody to pass out. But in this passage, we have an incredible portrait of the kind of faith that God is looking for, the kind of person that he's looking for, as we look at Stephen. Stephen, too, wants to speak truth out of love to help people know Jesus. Jesus. First, a little background. What do we know about Stephen? Well, his name, Stephen, Stephanos in the Greek, uh, means crown. It's the the victory uh, wreath that goes on the head of of the champion in the games. He was called by the apostles to be one of the seven to serve the widows um, after Jesus had died and as the church was beginning to grow. We'll see that God had a difficult path for Stephen's life. But he equipped him for the task. He was equipped. How was he equipped? Well, chapter six tells us that he was full of faith. He, was, he had that utter trust and dependence in Jesus. He was all in. If you watch "Jeopardy" anytime recently, you probably saw James Holthauser, uh, the professional gambler, and many times when he got the Daily Double. He would say, all in. He would bet it all. He had confidence in himself. The kind of faith that we want, the kind of faith that God calls us to, is all in, holding nothing back. Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. He embodied the fruit of the Spirit that we're surrounded by here, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. He was full of wisdom, he was full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of grace and full of power. The word power there is dunamis. It's where we get the word dynamite. It's how he, he, God worked through him to do miraculous signs and wonders. One of the first things I noticed in this passage was a great comfort to me, and I hope it will be for you as well. Here it is. In the same way that God equipped Stephen, For the difficult road that he would travel, we can trust that whatever challenges we will face in our lives, God has equipped us with the resources that we need to face them. Hebrews chapter 13 tells us that God equips us for every good work, for doing his will. Psalm 139, one of my favorite passages in the whole of our scriptures says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. And here's the point that applies here. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. One of my friends says, God don't make no junk. And he's not ever surprised. So whatever we face, we can have faith in God's promise and his well thought out plans for us. So what's happening in this passage Well, chapter 6, verse 7 says the Jewish leaders were worried. Uh, The the numbers of Christians were growing. Even some of the priests uh, had become Christians, and this troubled them. So in chapter 6, verse 10, the members of the synagogue start an argument with Stephen. But they could not stand up to his wisdom, the scriptures say, or the spirit by whom he spoke. Stephen did not initiate the argument, but he was prepared for it. So we too should heed the words of 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for the reason, for the hope that is in you. But do this with gentleness and respect. The accusers bring Stephen before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the supreme court of, Uh, For the Jewish people, it's the highest court. It's the same group, the actual same people uh, that tried Jesus and convicted him with false witnesses as well. What were their accusations? Well, they accused him of blasphemy against God, and they accused him of speaking against Moses, the law, and the temple, three sacred things at that time. We're told in chapter 6, verse 15, that the Sanhedrin looked at Stephen, and what they saw must have startled them. They saw that his face was like that of an angel. No anger, no fear, no bitterness. He was at peace. God's peace leads to courage. When we have trusted Jesus with every aspect of our life, We can truly be at peace. We can confidently and courageously face any circumstance, knowing that God is sovereign. Not just broadly speaking about being sovereign over the world, but specifically sovereign in every moment of our lives. Stephen took it to heart when Jesus said, My peace I give to you. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. So the scene is set. The high priest asks Stephen, are the charges true? Here we see the first glimpse of how Stephen loves as Jesus loves. In chapter 7, verse 2, he calls them brothers and fathers. These are his people. He gives them respect. He knows that they are lost and that somehow they have missed recognizing the Messiah, Jesus Probably these are people who taught him the Torah uh, as a child, and so he knows them. Later, we'll see how deeply he really loves them. He begins by calling God the God of glory. This is an all-encompassing name that only appears one other time in the Bible, in Psalm 29, He's letting them know that he believes in the same God that they believe in. He honors the same God that they do. There's no blasphemy here. You don't need to be worried about that. And for the next 51 verses that we didn't read, he goes through the scriptures and he says, I know these too. They're in my heart too. He honors the law and the scriptures that the Sanhedrin so deeply cherish. So let's stop here for a second. Stephen has given us a great reminder that as disciples of Jesus, we must diligently study the scriptures. Jesus said that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Our tendency here in America is to take the Bible for granted, that it will always be here, and that it will always be accessible. Thankfully, that's true right now. It has not always been, and it may not be in the future. But I want to show you a quick video of some uh, Chinese Christians who are receiving their Bibles for the very first time. It's a little blurry, but you'll get the point. Do we treasure God's way, God's word, the way these people do? Do we believe that it is what we need the most? I pray that we may all treasure God's word the way it deserves to be. Well, Stephen now turns to the accusations that he has been speaking against the temple and against Israel he shows from their very own scriptures, the same scriptures he believes in, how God interacted with Abraham, Joseph, and Moses outside of the land of Israel and without a temple. Where did God call Abraham? Ur, er, right? Not Israel. Where did Moses stand on holy ground in front of the burning bush? In Midian? Not Israel. Throughout the scriptures, there are plenty of places outside of the temple and outside of Israel where God appeared and did mighty deeds. Now that Stephen has addressed the main accusations of blasphemy, he turns to the theme of how throughout Jewish history, there's a pattern of the Jewish people of rejecting God's appointed deliverers. Joseph, Sold by his brothers. Moses, people kind of rejected him and forgot about him with that whole golden calf thing. David, he was on the run before he became king. And now, the one to whom all of Scripture, all the prophets have pointed Jesus. He calls them stiff necked with uncircumcised hearts. These terms remind them of Exodus chapter 32 and 33. This is the most shameful event in Jewish history when their hearts did turn back to Egypt. They call it the unspeakable deed when they made the golden calf. Some synagogues wouldn't even translate this into the the common vernacular because they were so ashamed of it. Stephen says, you've done worse. You've murdered the righteous one, Jesus, to whom all the law and the prophets point. These terms sound harsh, but have you ever loved someone, dearly loved them, that was headed toward disaster? Have you ever tried to come up with the right words to shake them, to wake them up, to jar them back into reality? Remember when Stephen started, he called them his brothers and his fathers. I believe that Stephen is speaking the truth in love here, Ephesians chapter four, fifteen. He knows that they're lost and he's pleading with them to listen to the truth. And in this, we find some wisdom for ourselves. All of us need another Christian in our lives, who loves us and who has our permission to tell us hard truth. Hearing it may be hard, feelings may be hurt temporarily, but we need someone who can say from the heart, I love you but you're blowing it here. I'm here to support you and encourage you and walk with you through this, but you need to deal with the truth. Hearing it may be hard, but that's what we need. Stephen was trying to open their eyes to the gospel that they had missed. He tries reminding them of what they already know deep down in their hearts. You have the law. You've had it for Millennia, but you've never obeyed it, and you can't. So he points them to the righteous one. He tells them that Jesus fulfilled the law righteously. He lived a completely sinless life. He paid the penalty for all of our sins with his atoning death on the cross. So there's no longer any need for sacrifices. Our sins have been permanently atoned for. And the law that you never could obey in the first place, Jesus did it for you. He is the righteous one. At this, the scriptures tell us they're cut to the heart. Literally, it means that they're sawn into, that they're sawn through and through. They're filled with anguish, wrath, and fury. Notice the contrast. They are gnashing, their teeth. Stephen's face is radiant as he gazes into heaven. As he gazes into heaven, he sees the glory of God. Remember, early on, he referred to Psalm 29, the God of glory. Now he is seeing the glory of God in reality. Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man, the Messiah, standing at the right hand of God. Why is Jesus standing? I thought the scriptures and our Apostles' Creed talk about he sits at the right hand of God the Father. His work is done. He's paid for our sins. He's lived a righteous life. He's done his work. And so that's why we talk about him sitting. So why? Would he be standing? Well, this is a glimpse into the throne room of heaven, which is also a courtroom. Who stands in a courtroom? An advocate. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2 say, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Hebrews chapter seven, verse twenty-five says, Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. Scholar F. F. Bruce says that while Stephen has been confessing Christ before men, now he sees Christ confessing him before God. The proper posture for a witness. Is standing. Stephen, condemned by an earthly court, sees his vindicator in that heavenly supreme court, and it's Jesus, who stands at God's right hand as Stephen's advocate and paraclete. At this, the Sanhedrin cover their ears and start yelling, and they rush at him. The word in the Greek for rushing is the same word that the scriptures use when Jesus cast the demons into the pigs and they ran off the cliff and killed themselves. Now they stone him. How does this work? Well, the witnesses are first in line. They lay their clothes at the feet of Saul. The cliff has to be at least twice the height of a man. And the first witness pushes him in the back, so that he falls face first into the rocks. Then the second witness throws a large stone, trying to hit him in his heart, to stop his heart. And lastly, because blasphemy was considered an offense against the community, the entire community joins in throwing rocks to finally kill him. While they were stoning him, Stephen says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. It shows Stephen's utter faith and trust in Jesus as God, his Savior. And he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Is this how we would react? Especially if we knew we were falsely accused? I have to confess... My sinful nature would say, get him, God. How about a lightning bolt? You know, smiting something. This is why I say Stephen loved them. Stephen followed the example of Jesus. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus said that from the cross. So Stephen became the first Christian martyr. The word in Greek for martyr literally means witness, one who bears testimony to. And Stephen has borne incredible testimony to his Savior and Lord. This is a call to radical and extravagant grace and forgiveness. Jesus and Stephen pray for their executioners. Both were falsely accused, and yet they extended grace. How can we, as Christ followers, offer anything less than grace to those who have offended us? How can we hold any grudge? I'm going to share the story. In North Korea, in the 1950s, Pastor Kim and his 27 members of his flock lived in hand-dug tunnels underground One day, as the communists were building a road, they discovered the Christians living underground. The officials brought them out before 30,000 people for a public trial and execution. They were told, deny Christ or you will die, but they refused. The officer then called for a steamroller to be brought in, and he forced the Christians to lie on the ground As its engine revved, they were given one last chance to recant their faith in Christ, and again they refused. As the steamroller began to inch forward, the Christians began to sing a song they had often sung together. As their bones and bodies were crushed under the pressure of the massive rollers, their lips uttered the words, More love to thee, O Christ. more love to thee. Thee alone I seek, more love to thee. Let sorrow do its work, more love to thee. Then shall my latest breath whisper thy praise. This is the parting cry. My heart shall raise, more love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. One more point that kind of snuck up on me. Maybe you already knew this. Luke is the writer of the book of Acts, uh, but he wasn't present at the stoning. So, how did he come to write all of this? He tells us that he got his information from eyewitnesses. Who could have given the account? The people who stoned Stephen? Not likely. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was giving approval to his death. It's Saul who would later become the Apostle Paul, who would later write much of the New Testament. Saul had to see in Stephen's face the same peace in death as when he was living and he couldn't shake it. Augustine says that the church owes Paul to the prayer of Stephen. We never know who's watching us. It may be someone like Saul. It may be one of the 30,000 who witnessed the steamroller death of the Korean Christians who sang Christ's praises even as they died. We never know how God might use our words, our face, our testimony of God's grace in our own lives. How we respond in a crisis or when facing persecution or suffering. This is not a facade that we put on. It's not a good face. It's a reminder that as Christians, we have the privilege of carrying Jesus' name. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, We are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making his appeal through us. To paraphrase a quote from the book Jesus Freaks by DC Talk, We may never be faced with dying for Jesus, as Stephen did, but every day we do face the decision of whether or not we will truly live for Jesus. By God's grace, may we all say with Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Amen.